Welcome to another episode for Radio Life Ray. Uh, with me this time is Mike Han. Uh, I'll let you do all of the introduction of yourself um, and start with my introductory question. Uh, who are you? What are you doing here? And how did you find Life Ray? Or did Life Ray find you? Okay. Well, um, well you said my name's Mike, but that's always good. Um, so I'm technically now the Vice President of Operations for LifeRay. So, you know, in LifeRay, titles don't mean really a whole lot. We all play very different roles, and actually most of us wear several different hats anyway. So uh, my primary responsibilities are working with the LifeRay Global Services team in the U.S., making sure that we deliver the right solutions to our customers in that fashion, and then also interfacing with several of our strategic accounts um, for everything from financial services to high-tech and so on. Um, I mean, my background is in financial services. So I used to run a proprietary trading company and uh, you know, write proprietary trading systems and all that fun stuff. So how do I find life rate? Well, I think Brian and I have known each other for probably about 12 years or so now. So it's been quite a while. But uh, I remember when he first started writing things into LifeRay, uh, he and I would have a few conversations here and there about just software design and configuration management and things like that. So, but actually, you know, some of the things like Tunnel Circular, Servlet, uh, were things that he and I were talked about when we were doing Java Corva 10 years ago. So it's you know, been around through the, through the various open source side for quite some time. Um, I guess I've been with LifeRay about four years now. Um, when I joined, it was actually, you know, Brian called me up and said, hey, Mike, we're going to China. Oh, really? Interesting. Uh, <laughs> so he told me how he wanted to open the office in China and you know, what the thought processes were. And I kind of said, well, you know what, let's talk through it. And, and um, you know, so I went into China with um, Brian Chung kind of to look at some spaces and stuff like that. And I really, what kind of brought me over from doing proprietary trading is the chance to actually help a company grow on an international scale. So I've run consulting companies before. I've had my own firm for quite some time, but always based in the U.S. There's some obviously unique challenges when you try to take a company and put it out on a global scale. So that's really one of the primary reasons I was attracted into uh, joining LifeRay. So four years in, um, you know, now we have our office in China. We have our office in you know, Germany, everywhere else. And definitely it's you know, quite interesting to see how business operates in each region uh, in each country is somewhat different I think one of the, the, the funniest part was um, one of our sales guys and I went down to Australia here we were thinking well it's an English speaking country it can't be that much different in how people do business or how big the market is right mm -hmm. and then we realized that um, we've learned very quickly that the technology space in Australia is very small everybody knows everybody And it was just very different than what we're used to seeing in like the U.S., which is a much larger marketplace. Mm -hmm. um, now, you know, you take that and look at China and look at Malaysia, Singapore. Each of these marketplaces are very unique, very different. Um, that's, you know, kind of gives you a... It's almost like you're learning new things every day. Mm -hmm. That's good. So China was the first office to open? or No, um, I think... Like after L.A.? Or? Well... It was L.A., then Germany, actually. Frankfurt was number two. Okay. And then China was number three. Mm -hmm. um, so now, I don't know, we have seven, eight 
whatever the number is. <laughs> so it's several you know, one-man offices or well, no, single-person I mean, offices. Then, then it's probably a few more. Yeah, I, mean, I think like Spain started out because Jorge was based there, and as one of our very senior architects, he naturally started formulating an engineering team in Spain. Mm-hmm. And that kind of just organically grew. So the first year, I think we had three people in Spain, um, and kind of organically grew from there. China was somewhat different because China, we didn't have anybody in China at the time. Uh, so we went there. Uh, Brian Chung and I went down there along with um, Ivan Chung, a couple of the other folks, looked at some spaces. Um, actually, got an office space, and the office space was actually bigger than the LA office. Mm-hmm. which is kind of surprising but um, so we went in it was this brand new building that, that the Chinese government put up um, and we looked around and yeah this looks fine so then we actually um, hired five uh, trying to remember five I believe five uh, local employees and then we sent two of our employees from the US over to one to serve as the general manager and the other served to serve as the support manager mm-hmm. and it actually worked out because the, the initial thoughts about going to China was certainly part of it was conscious of that it is cheaper in China, but more so, so that you know there's a, a lot of engineers in China, and we felt that we needed more capacity on the engineering side, and we needed a, a follow the sun support model, and there's no way of, as much as our engineers work seventy hours a week. You can't ask our support staff to work 24 hours a day from LA. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. So we needed to find some place, and you know, China being the logical next step. So we went from Los Angeles to China to Frankfurt slash Madrid as the initial build out of our 24 by 7 support strategy. And over the last, so we've been in China for since 2007, so almost four years now, and it's the office has grown by leaps and bounds. Um, we moved out of our previous office space. We actually now have 6,000 square feet, um, I guess 600 square meters of office mm-hmm. space. Again, it's much significantly larger than what we have in the, in the headquarters office even. But um, um, there we have 30-plus employees in support, consulting, training. So it's almost like a mini uh, L.A. Mm-hmm. We also do a significant amount of our infrastructure um, engineering in China as well. So we have a very good team in terms of dealing with things like cluster management, um, infrastructure, cluster link, cluster executor service. All those things were developed by that infrastructure team. Mm-hmm. And they, we also do a significant amount of performance tuning, performance management there. Um, and so it's, we've been able to take the product from roughly about, so like, like let's just look at the login scenario as an example. In 5.1, on the enterprise edition side, we're logging in roughly about 3,000 virtual users at a time through the system and hitting about 70% CPU load. The community edition side at the time was roughly about 1,700. We fast forward three years. As we're testing 6.1, we actually were saturating our gigabit network with the number of login transactions. So we were actually hitting roughly about 20 to 25,000 virtual users for login on the exact same server hardware that we had used for uh, our 6.0 tests. Mm -hmm. Uh, 6.0 is roughly about 13,000. So now, obviously, not everything in the portal improved by, you know, twofold every year. 
Um, but most of the items are at least two to three times faster in 6.1 than where we were in 5.1 and 5.2. Mm -hmm. um, you spoke about this, uh, the, the login scenario, that's the isolated logins, just people logging in and then start the next session, like the, the worst case um, use case you can do uh, with, with the out-of-the-box portal, or how can you categorize that? So um, the reason we choose login is, I mean, it is a very complex and heavy transaction. Certainly, if you look at message boards, blogs, they involve more, more resources on the database, so on, and maybe more caching. But login transactions, if we, have, we generally start with a million users in our database. So that pretty much guarantees that it takes a long time before all the users get pulled in the cache. So we do pound the database very heavily. And then also at login times when we pull in users' uh, permissions and roles and everything else. So it's a pretty heavy transaction. But at the same time, it, we don't just simply test login and then leave the system. Mm -hmm. Our test case is we hit the homepage, provide the user roughly about five to 10 seconds to simulate the fact that they're actually entering their username and password, logging in, then arriving to the homepage and waiting for about 20 to 30 seconds for them to process the information and then logging out. So during this process, because on the page that we provide on the homepage, it's very content-centric. So most of it's cached. So we're able to gauge um, what the performance would look like if you have very fast portlets. So when we are sitting on a page with 100 to 200 milliseconds of um, latency from when we generate the page and show the user, we're able to hit 25,000, 20 to 25,000 virtual users. But one of the... the The questions we always ask is, well, you know, we always say this because the performance varies based on what your portlets look like and how fast your portlets perform. So if you have four portlets on a page that take one second apiece, that means that during the overall rendering of that request, it, it will take four seconds. So that's four seconds where the application server's resources are being consumed. So in that type of a scenario, we do see degradation. So what will happen is your the virtual you no know, total concurrent virtual user load will drop from say twenty five down to thirteen to fourteen thousand. Um, so it's it is a pretty dramatic drop once we get into a scenario where um, you have a lot of delays on your custom portlets. And we had a customer in LA recently that had web service times that performed in eighteen seconds. We went in did stress tests with them. Portal, the portal server didn't even didn't even uh, really wasn't even hitting more than 20% on CPU mm -hmm. but they still couldn't scale because the web service was taking so long yeah it was waiting mainly waiting yeah, yeah. exactly just waiting for resources mm -hmm. yeah there are a number of Other different scenarios, um, my favorite question that I get is uh, like how many servers do I need, how many resources do I need, um, how many CPUs do I need, how much memory do I need, um, and all of that is laid out in the performance white paper. Um, well, we don't lay it all out in the performance white paper. To, okay. What we do tell people is these are the test case scenarios we've designed. These are meant to represent what would happen in a normal user collaboration environment in a simulated high transaction environment and so on. Because it's so uh, it's very difficult for us as an engineering team to predict what our end users portlets perform like. 
right? If they're using our out-of-the-box portlets, obviously we know and we can anticipate that. And that's why we test things like blogs, wikis, and message boards, and document library, and so on. But when a user, let's say, for is uh, in a financial situation, uh, customer situation, they have a custom portlet that goes out and places um, inquiries against their trade database. We can't guarantee how fast that behaves. And that's the reason why in our transaction test cases, we put in simulators. We simulate that a transaction will take 500 milliseconds, one second, two seconds, and use that to kind of give us an initial gauge. So customers, they have to really understand what their end users or their end solution will perform like in order to gauge what kind of processing power they need. We know for a fact that if you're running on a eight, um, dual CPU uh, quad core with hyper-threading activated and 16 gigs of memory, that it will handle if it's just very similar to our normal test case, anywhere from 15 to 25,000 virtual users without an issue. Now, you know, let's say you you're trying to scale out to 100,000 concurrent virtual users. Well, in that scenario, you can certainly say, well, okay, I just multiply by 10 and move forward from there. But you have to really understand how your users are going to use the system. Because we always get the same questions, right? And I'm sure you do as well. Yep. I have 2 million users. That's very nice. How many users are actually doing transactions and using the portal at the same time? People will say half a million. Okay, 500,000. But then how many, that's 500,000 people that are logged in currently at the same time. But how much concurrent transactions are you really running? And a lot of that's where people have a very hard time because they don't quite understand that when you have a virtual user, your users are processing the information. They're not going onto the portal, just going click, 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 right? And Mm -hmm. issuing transactions every millisecond. And what we tend to see customers do when they do their test cases, they put in like a one-second sleep time between transactions, which is complete, basically makes your test results somewhat irrelevant. Yeah, right. At least with regards to the expected number of actual users. Yeah. Right, exactly. So uh, I think what we tend to see is a lot of customers don't do this type of planning on their own, and they wait to the last minute and just throw a bunch of JMeter tests out there. And that's something that we continually advise customers, especially customers that where we have global services engaged at the very initial outset in architectural reviews and kickoff projects. We, and we basically tell them, hey, look at your performance, look at your scale before you start even start writing code. Think about how to plan your infrastructure out mm-hmm. so that you know, if you're trying to deliver a project in three months, you're not trying to spend the last two weeks in performance realizing you, you can't perform and then going, oh, what do I tell my business? And that's the worst position to be in. Right. That's my favorite advice. Um, if you're testing at the end, make sure that you're not testing that it all works. Make sure that testing is a testing if it all works so that you have, well, pl- plan something to make it work. Um, yep. Testing that it works is typically recipe for disaster if it doesn't work. Yeah. And, and what this works is something that I think a lot of clients... Um, when they look at a portal project, most of them are more focused on what the end user is doing uh, in terms of receiving, in terms of capabilities and so on. They may not think about what happens when you scale up to 100 users, to everybody within a 100,000 user corporation and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a client in, uh, in the U.S. recently that said, oh, I need to support 
2,000 virtual users. So great, that should be fine. Your hardware should be able to support that, no problem. And uh, we, we, they said, no, 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 it's not performing. We asked them, so what hardware are you using? They gave us the specifications, and we, we looked, and it was very bizarre. You should be able to support it. And it, after actually really sitting down with them, and of course, this was a week before they were supposed to go live, it turned out that their hardware was significantly less than what they originally thought it was. And mm-hmm. uh, they had to kind of readjust their expectations that, okay, in reality, I, this hardware can only support about two to 300 virtual users. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a very tough decision, but it's something that, again, if they had planned ahead earlier, that they could have raised these issues with the business before um, implementation. Um, can you talk a bit more about the the scenarios that we have? Like, how how did you come to them? It's um, well, basically the the. Um, Well, you, you, you already talked about the uh, login mm-hmm. scenario, then the blog and, and message boards. Um, that's kind of the heavy usage scenarios with lots of performance, uh, uh, permission uh, testing and so on. Uh, and the web content, uh, which is a heavily cached mm-hmm. um, scenario where uh, World well, Ifree is rather or is, is first saturating the network bandwidth uh, and, and only later the CPU well later the CPU there is no later if, if <laughs> no data goes through, uh, through the network right. um, uh, like the, these give a, a good range of numbers um, and since, since when do we actually do that uh, first one I've seen is 5.1 uh, but then that's the first one that I've actually been involved with Yeah, I mean, 5.1 was when we really started focusing down on, mm-hmm. on the performance and really scaling things out. Before 5.1, um, we knew that we could perform. We've had customers, large customers like um, Intuit and so on, that were on 4.3, 4.4. And we've always worked very closely with them to um, you know troubleshoot and tune any of the performance. But our product strategy shifted Uh, when we started moving to 5.0, 5.1. That's when we made the conscious decision that we we should be creating more value for our customers by hardening the product more instead of just simply putting the features in place, doing some QA tests, make sure functionally it behaved, and then releasing it. So that's when we started creating the enterprise edition of the product. As part of that process, we started building out the essentially with the performance management team so the team basically has um, several members that day in and day out, that's all they do is run tests. So starting from about six months before a product is getting close to release, we start updating our performance environments. So mm-hmm. making sure we have the right, the latest operating systems, everything else. And then re-baselining the previous version of the product. Um, so for in this case, 6.0 EE, uh, we start re-baselining roughly about May making sure that everything works smoothly through the performance test environment. And then um, starting the test, even the C version of the product, um, as we're starting to test that, we can tune, do some minor tuning, things like that. But then as we start entering the enterprise edition cycle, we really start focusing down on different test cases. Um, the test cases, you know, we don't come up with those test cases in a vacuum. We do talk to customers and try to understand how their users are actually using the product, what their average loads look like in different types of scenarios, 
and we use that to kind of design what that test case looks like for our products. Um, in the case of like a document library that we're testing in 6.1, we have a couple different test cases. One is um, making sure that we have a lot of access, uh, so a lot of users accessing relatively medium-sized documents, so like 100K to 200K-sized documents. Then the other test case that we are pushing is being able to store a significant number of documents in our repository. So we're talking on a scale of millions of documents and see if that, if we have data scalability problems behind the scenes. So all these different test cases and so on, um, you know, we have our own dedicated performance environments with separate tooling. So we use um, a tool out there called Dynatrace to help us manage some of these performance um, metrics and help us discover where our performance bottlenecks are. And this process, it's, I mean, we probably spent for each product release cycle three to four man years of effort going through the performance tuning, making sure that the enterprise edition product scales and so on. Um, now, that portion is just the performance piece. The security piece, we go through a very similar exercise. So um, we have customers that audit our software every year. And so we work very closely with their internal security um, security checks so that if any vulnerabilities are found, we go ahead and address them in the product in a service pack or in a hot fix and get those to them as part of the enterprise edition. There are certainly vulnerabilities that are found um, that are quite severe. In those cases, we evaluate you know, whether it's severe enough that we need to put in a hot patch for our community. And there were two situations that happened for LifeRate 6 where we actually created hot patches to the community to make sure that their vulnerabilities are, are patched as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, these are all the different things we do as part of just the, the regular enterprise edition process. Okay. I can add a little bit of uh, my own experience to that. Uh, something that I like to, um, well, that I like to mention in, for example, trainings and in, in system admin training where we mention uh, security scanning and so on. Uh, this was a story with one of our customers who actually ran a security scan, uh, some some third-party security scanner on it. And, uh, well, my favorite part in that is, well, not really favorite, but the alarming part on that was uh, order of magnitude 50, deep red, really bad, severe, uh, mm-hmm. flagged uh, errors mm-hmm. um, that, uh, well, that were really, uh, admittedly, the highest category of stuff. Um, and, uh, well, we started to reproduce them and we're actually not able to reproduce them. Um, and the reason, of that, uh, the reason for that was uh, that this automatic scanner, I don't recall which tool it was, was more or less based on pattern matching. So mm-hmm. trying to inject, uh, I'd like to read etc pass wd, the password file on Linux or on, on Unix machines, and mm-hmm. well then scanned for the appearance of root of that, uh, of that just those four letters on the page. Mm-hmm. Uh, and guess what? Every LifeRay page contains some mentioning of some root somewhere. Uh, causing that to, to actually flag, yes, I've been able to read the password, which was not the case. Um, so it ended up that uh, there was one um, uh, rather minor, um, as far as I know, but quickly fixed, um, obscure bug that was, I think that took half a day to reproduce because it was just some minor 
uh, really weird situation, mm-hmm. um, but that's like the first security scan that I actually have been involved mm-hmm. in myself, and that quite sticks. Yeah. So. And we use a third party to ourselves to do both white box and black box security scans. And it's a very, very tedious process. I mean, I really don't envy the guys who do this for a living day in and day out. Because even when we run it against the normal product, we, get, we will get several hundred perceived vulnerabilities. So when we're doing black box, those go, oh, you know, there's a potential for cross-site scripting here. But then when we actually look at it, it's not. And the white box type security testing is even worse. Uh, so the difference between the two is basically black box security testing. You're just throwing URLs at the at a site and try to see what the reactions are. White box is actually it's going through the code and scanning through the source code for different coding patterns. Mm-hmm. And we get flagged for various coding patterns like SQL injection. And then when we actually look in the code, it's impossible. How are we getting SQL injection? We review every bloody line of code. And it actually turns out that we have we run upgrade tools. So these are never run. These, this code was never touched as part of a normal user's request. Mm-hmm. But when the portal first starts up, we check what version of the schema you have in the database. And then if you have the wrong version, we automatically upgrade you. Well, that's what actually triggered the SQL injection. Because we do. Yeah, we have a SQL connection that we pull SQL from another file to, to, to uh, execute against. Mm-hmm. So there's actually nothing, it's not a security vulnerability. It's yeah, there's no user input, there's just yeah. well-known content yeah. going over there, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But unfortunately, we get flagged. So mm-hmm. we had this massive number of vulnerabilities, and our engineers had to go through each one and go, uh, no, it's actually addressed because this is part of design, this is the reason why. And then we resubmit that back to the third party. They go review it again. and you know. So it's a very arduous process. Yeah. Um, and that's part of the reason why we only run on our enterprise edition side is that, um, you know, that's, again, the extra value we provide. But the really great thing about open source software is that, you know, our own source code is out there for everybody to look at. There have been, I do recall two specific situations where a community member had found what could be termed as a vulnerability in the product. So there's one area where we were passing some secure data around. It was in the user session, and it was just so happened to be that he was running a debugger at the time and was, inter- was introspecting to see what certain values were. And he saw, oh, wait a minute, why is this, this field here? This shouldn't be here. And we're just like, wow. There's absolutely no way that any security scanning software would ever find this because it's something that's a very internal system. And there's no possible way this information would, would leak out onto a website somewhere or anything like that. Mm-hmm. However, because this community member was doing the due diligence of running a debugger, stepping to understand what the code is doing, he found that. And that's something that I think, you know, people always say, oh, is open source truly secure? I would probably argue that open source is probably more secure than some of the proprietary ones because you got so many pairs of eyes looking at the code. If you had a vulnerability, somebody would see it and also help you to address it as well. Yeah. I spoke a bit with Cynthia uh, Mm -hmm. in that episode about reporting security issues, Mm -hmm. Um, but I can't hear that often enough, and maybe you have another (laughs) idea, like people are wondering um, how do I file security issues uh, on on Liferay, not everybody has heard the Cynthia episode, Um, so how do I do that? Well, the easiest way is go to Jira. Right, so when you log into Jira um, to log an issue, 
um, you can create it under the category security or the component security. But you need to make sure to flag that issue as private. Mm-hmm. Because you know, if you did find a security vulnerability, you don't necessarily want to broadcast it all. So you flag it as private, then only you and the library staff can actually see that issue. We'll work through it, resolve it. Once we've resolved and, and determined that it's actually a vulnerability and there is actually a, a fix for it and things like that, then we'll probably put out a fix and then we'll go ahead and make the issue public so that people can go, okay, here's the issue, here's the, here's the vulnerability, here's the fix for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's really the best way to let us know what the security issues are. And every there's a separate team that actually monitors the, the JIRA security issues. And there's emails that go out to the, to the security team whenever new issues are created. And also, there's at the end of the week, we do get it from an engineering management perspective. We get an email that says, here's all the pending security issues in the product that have either been verified or have been still yet to be verified. And those are addressed as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Now, that for customers uh, on the enterprise edition side of it, um, they can go into the customer portal, file a support ticket, and flag that as a security issue. And the support team will go through and you know, help them with that process. Mm-hmm. Okay. guess that nails it <laughs> <laughs> quite well. Um, and it's actually the same as Cynthia said, so there's some consistency in there, and that's always good for reporting those bugs. It goes to show you that it is actually a real process. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> and it was an unprepared question, so... Um, yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, we had quite a bit there. Anything else to say to security issues? Uh, or security scanning? Security stuff? Um, not so much. Um, and basically, going forward with 6.1 on forward, we'll be creating um, third-party audit reports every year for mm-hmm. our latest version, the Enterprise Edition. So enterprise customers will be able to actually go to the customer portal and, and, and view those. Um, and it's something that with 6.1, we, because there's so many things we're adding, it's taken us a little bit longer to actually create that report, but it, it will be made available later on to our customers. Mm-hmm. So any story for community edition and security issues um, that is worth reporting? The most recent ones, we, I think for most of the serious ones that we've found from the enterprise customer network and also from the community have, have all been resolved. So there hasn't been anything major that I can think of. Mm-hmm. Um, the last round of security issues that have come through have been some cross-site scripting issues that have arose and things like that. But beyond that, nothing really comes strikes to mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do remember from several years ago, there was a one vulnerability where um, a user could actually accidentally shut down their server um, mm-hmm. from executing a script. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that was back in, I think, version 4.3 or 4.3 yeah, or 4.4. Um, and that was that was actually addressed very quickly as well. I guess so. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm not going to tell people how they execute the script or what kind of script, so we'll leave it at that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Then, uh, well, let's. Uh, I have two more things that came to my mind for uh, for the basic setup of a LifeRay server and uh, the performance mm-hmm. part. Uh, like I want my server to be as performant as possible 
Uh, this means I need to uh, take care of the amount of memory in there, um, about the number of CPUs. Uh, obviously, the more CPUs, the better, uh, right? Um, well, the, more, the more memory, the better. Uh, the, the the quicker the garbage collector, the better. Uh, so can you can you give me the definitive set of settings like you probably memorize dash d uh, dash x uh, something well, for some actually, VM I don't memorize any of these things for the JVM because they always change in terms of like the parameters because at the end of the day you, you work with different JVM vendors and it's all a little bit different but I mean if you want to look at overall what your configuration should be so one of the common questions we always get is, um, you know, do I use Sun Solaris? Do I use, uh, sorry, Sun Spark? Do I, or sorry, Oracle Spark now, I guess. <laughs> uh, Intel chips or PowerPC chips? Um, and, uh, and our response back generally is it kind of depends on what type of portal you're trying to do. Most of our customers tend to be on, on Linux Intel, just because that is the lowest cost solution. But we do have some customers that use IBM PowerPC because those are actually quite nice chips. They're, uh, I believe, quad cores with um, quad or eight core chips with like 3.8 gigahertz on a RISC architecture. Mm-hmm. So it's it's actually a very nice chip, very fast. Um, but and the Sun ones are very good for I/O based type operations. So we always kind of tell our customers like look at what kind of portal you're trying to do. Majority of the cases. Linux and Intel is probably the right way, or Linux slash AMD is probably the right way to go. Because mm-hmm. um, at the end of the day, LifeRay is a web application. So what we're, we're really doing in the application is getting data, taking the data, creating HTML, and sending it to the user, and then garbage collecting the HTML after it's been sent. So that means that you're, you need, it is a CPU-intensive operation. If on a, on a properly cached system, most of the data should be coming from cache, not from your database or other I/O-based operations. So you want to be high CPU. Um, now, in terms of memory, most people when they go out and buy a server now, it's probably buying 16 gigs or 32 gigs of memory. Um, but what we tend to see is, you know, when you have a JVM with 16 gigs of memory, you actually suffer performance degradation because it's too much memory in the heap, and the garbage collector can't keep up and can't garbage collect fast enough. So um, we work with Terracotta on this a little bit as well. So with Terracotta, there's a cost of big memory where you can actually reduce the size of your overall heap and within the JVM and then move some of the cache data onto another cache process on the same box. So if you bought a machine with 16 gigabytes, you can allocate, say, 2 to 4 gigabytes for, for your JVM and allocate another eight gigabytes for external off JVM storage. That's nice. Um, yeah, so it definitely, it, it helps because if you think about how JVM perform, performs, you have the garbage collector algorithm most people tend to use is um, a generational collector, which means you have objects that live inside of what we call um, young generation, right? So they're objects that are created and destroyed very quickly. And then you have your old generation, which is your generally cached objects and so on. So young generation collection, what we typically see in our environments, in our engineering environments, is anywhere from 30 to 60 milliseconds. And then on the old generation side, we tend to see longer ones, so anywhere from 150 to 200 milliseconds. That's kind of roughly the range where you want to be in. We have seen folks that have, you know, the young generation collection times of 
300 milliseconds. In those scenarios, we, we tell them, hey, you guys have the wrong settings. You need to tune your young generation so it's smaller, so it's faster to actually collect. So we always go through these performance tuning exercises. Actually, Sun has, I keep saying Sun, <laughs> Oracle has this blog uh, from a, a former Sun engineer that basically lists every single JVM option since version 1.3 of the JVM. It's a very good blog. So if you do just do a search on Google for JVM options, Sun JVM options, it provides you a very definitive list. Now, if you look at the other JVMs like IBM and JRocket, they have their own parameters that to tune. So, for example, I think um, for JRocket, you have to say dash congen or con congen for concurrent concurrent generation or something like that, but. These parameters are just simply, it's like, they're just simply in the documentation. If you understand the underlying architecture design of the JVM and how garbage collector plays in, you'll be able to use really any JVM and apply the same concepts, just with different dialects, if you will. Right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's like the same things that your college professor told you. Um, don't worry about what the programming language is. If you understand the underlying design concepts and, and the um, algorithm concepts, you'll be able to use any any language. Mm -hmm. So more memory can actually be... Inside of the JVM, it can actually be detrimental. Um, we're working with Azul Systems um, on some kind of R&D on our side. But Azul, if you're not familiar with them, they basically create have the reputation of having these massive JVMs, 250 gigabytes. Mm -hmm. They're able to do it because they their JVM technology actually is designed to have pauseless garbage collector. So it's it's quite nice for especially for financial applications and for applications that want quote unquote deterministic garbage collection. Um, but most users probably won't have that. They're just usage sun or, or uh, IBM JVMs. In those scenarios you really have to be conscious that at a certain point more memory is actually bad. Which is kind of sounds weird, right? Yeah. <laughs> when you have a laptop Definitely. you want as much as you want. But yeah. yeah. Within JVM, it's not that way. Uh -huh. But more CPU is better than less um, CPU. Yeah, absolutely. At the end of the day, the more cores you have, that's the more work you can do. So when we're configuring the JVM parameters, for example, there's a parameter you can set for just setting how many CPU threads to consume as part of doing a garbage collection. So we always tend to recommend our customers set for all the, all the processing cores available. On, on the server. At the end of the day, if you use only four of the eight available eight cores and you take twice as long, what's the point? Why don't you just consume all eight cores, get it done with, and then actually do some real productive work afterwards? Especially in garbage collection, yeah. Especially in garbage collection. Short pause is better than, than frequent garbage collection. Right. Yeah, exactly. So um, what we tend to see, and so far most of our customers are on quad cores. But we are starting to see some customers move to Hexa core servers. And I would think that most of the market would probably move to Hexa core servers in the next year to two years. Mm -hmm. And I guess we'll update the performance white paper then for the next version with the, well, currently available or then currently available hardware, right? Uh, yeah, pretty much. I mean, we, we certainly have the ability to go and get the... the best CPU possible, right? I mean, our performance, our budget for our performance environment is actually quite large. 
but we don't go out there and buy the fastest possible server because most of our customers don't do that. They'll find what the best price point is. So like right now, we actually don't test on hexacore servers. We test on uh, quad-core servers because hexacore servers, most of our customers aren't on it. But when we see most of our customers and the community move to hexacores, very much so, we will standardize our performance environments on hexacores as well. Uh, otherwise, we end up publishing these test results that may look fantastic, but they're somewhat meaningless because they don't really reflect what most customers tend to do. Yeah. And that's something that you know we kind of take pride in our process and that we want to really try to reflect what our real numbers should be in a real customer scenario. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I guess that ends the list, what I have here as notes. Uh, not really introductory questions that I had uh, because there were quite a few. Um, but uh, well, the, the notes that I made uh, during this uh, conversation. So is there anything that you would like to add? Uh, doesn't need to be performance related, <laughs> uh, just to your, your basic job or what you're doing or... Uh, No, not really. I mean, I, I spend a lot of time with you know meeting with our customers and really understanding what they're trying to accomplish with the product and so on. So a lot of the lessons we hear from them, we're able to incorporate back into the product. Um, you know, we have the same type of interaction with our community, so I really look forward to seeing how we can kind of continue to evolve the product from input both from the customer side and from the community side as well. Mm-hmm. And we'll You know, obviously, as we continue to evolve the platform, additional functionality, additional parameters will come in. Um, and we, over the last couple of years, we've made great strides in implementing a cluster management framework on the back end for us. And I, we're starting to reap benefits of that in 6.1. And as we move to 6.2, we're probably looking to add a little bit more capabilities back there for things like being able to tell, uh, to manage a library portal cluster directly within the portal and so on. Mm-hmm. Sounds good. Looking forward to that. Cool. Yeah. A lot of yeah. fun things coming. <laughs> That's good. And the next version is always the best. Well, we have to keep our jobs, right? <laughs> <laughs> so we got we have to give people a reason to upgrade. And simply, you know, at, at the end of the day, most businesses don't upgrade for the sake of upgrading. They upgrade because they have you have provided them a, a, a solution that really meets what they need on their business side. Yeah. And that's what we hope to do with every release. Okay. Then I'd say thank you. Cheers. <laughs>